Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And I'll set today's conversation up like this. A few months ago, I had the opportunity to go to the High Seas Raises All Tides conference that was in Omaha. Uh, And while there, I had a number of folks ask for a podcast. And that's typically how this works. People sometimes question, where do you get your guests from? And how do you pick your different topics? It typically is just interest from people that as I'm out and about. And so at that conference, folks said, I'd like to know more about some of the things that are going on in our state. For those students who have not yet met their IEP goals or graduated then as a result of that, and the services we provide for them as they move through that between the ages of 18 and 21. And so uh, in asking around, I was pointed to our two guests for today as being uh, individuals who uh, would be able to help us explore this topic a little bit more. And so I want to say thank you to Erica Johnson, who's currently at ESU 10 as an assistant special education director, but will be entering into the position of director of special education at North Pat Public Schools uh, coming up not just in the future. Uh, so Erica is going to join us along with Pam Brzezinski, special education director at ESU 13. And so Erica, Pam, after that long introduction, welcome to the podcast. Thanks thank for having you us. for having us. <laughs> Uh, and I'm so excited to learn from everybody today. I, I, this is a topic that I'm really curious to know more about. Uh, and so I'm going to ask, I guess, to kind of get things started and we'll take turns here. Erica, if you would, will you give a little bit of an introduction beyond uh, the titles I was able to provide there and a little bit about your backstory in education? Oh, sure. I started off as a resource teacher, actually, at Gothenburg Public Schools. was there for about 11 years. And then I was actually the secondary special education coordinator at North Platte for a couple of years. And then I've been at ESU 10 as the assistant special education director for six years, and I'm headed back to North Platte. I'm sure that's got to feel good too, to, to return back to a place that you're at previously and, and kind of reestablish some of those relationships and continue to do the good work that I'm sure you're invested in at ESU's, but, but also to be able to extend some of that stuff there. Uh, and so Pam, you would take your turn maybe and give us your introduction and backstory in education. So I actually graduated from Schuyler Central High in Nebraska, and then I left the state with my husband, who was an Air Force airman. And so we have traveled to multiple states. And in that journey, I became a second career teacher. I have a bachelor's degree in business, and I decided at one point in time that I wanted to give more back to society, and I entered teaching. And I started as a sixth grade language arts and social studies teacher, and then found my love my calling in special education and moved into K through 21 special education support and services. I worked in rural North Dakota, and then I accepted the transition coordinator position with ESU 13 and kind of came home to Nebraska. So that's kind of a little bit about my educational background. Well, thank you both for joining us and bringing the expertise that you bring to this conversation. And even in our getting ready for today's pod, I found myself struggling to even come up with the right terminology for how to talk about this work. And so for those that are maybe like I found myself prior to this dialogue, uh, can you talk a little bit about how, how do we talk about this support for our 18 to 21 year olds in terms of, you taught me today, programming is what we want to share here, right? So can you give me a little bit more on that? Sure, I'll go. 
So programming for students with disabilities past the age of 18 really is just that programming. So many times people think, especially with maybe our smaller school districts that might not have a student who stays past the age of 18, so maybe they socially graduate. Some people think it's a magic program that we put kids in. And that's not, that's not what it is. It really is programming on what they need in their next environment. So if they need job site work and they need help on the job site, then we're going to provide that programming for them. Or maybe they need life skills and they need help living in an apartment. And so we're going to provide that programming for them. So we're really supporting them in what they need next when they go to their next environment. And I think it's important, Andrew, to know that it's a continuation of what has been done. If you look at transition across the lifespan, we as special educators have been building this IEP and this presence of the community as a support and everyone as a support. And so really the 18 to 21 programming that Erica talked about is really just a continuation of the assessment data that comes forward and everything to identify specifically what that student hadn't met in their IEPs. Can I ask then, I guess, who would be present at the conversations that would come around designing that programming then. Uh, we had the opportunity a few months back to host some of our C2B support service people. And they talked about how uh, during that time that the role of the parents kind of shifts. And so I would imagine that when we get into 18 to 21, there's a, maybe a different collection of folks that are at the table for at least identifying those IEP goals that, if I'm understanding right, are driving the decisions that go into this programming. So the state law recently changed in Nebraska, where it used to be that transition age was considered 16 and above and less needed for lower grades and ages. But it changed this last year to 14 and above. And at that point, it is a requirement that in addition to parents, the local educational agency representative, teachers, gen ed teachers and sped teachers, anyone who has an educational interest in the child and an agency representative, because we believe in bringing the community around and getting them connected to that resource before they leave high school. And Erica, did I forget anyone? I, I feel like I did. <laughs> I think, I think you're good. I think the LEA rep, I don't know if you've mentioned LEA rep, but yeah, it really is. And I, I love that you say that because it's an ongoing conversation. So it just isn't magically, oh, their senior year, we're going to talk about this. It really starts when they're 14 or even younger. So then we're, we're having these discussions at their IEP meetings so we can prepare for what's next. Yeah. And just for clarification, a moment ago, when you said agency, were we talking about uh, agency in the sense of a service unit or in terms of it, it sounded almost like you meant in the community, like a uh, potential place of employment? Yes. The requirement is that it has to be a community-based agency. So for example, ESU 13 has a transition coordinator. That transition coordinator cannot sit as the role of that agency. It needs to be someone like Nebraska VR, DHHS, maybe we have Cirrus House in our area, any support that a wraparound support that we can provide to them to get them to independence after they age out. Okay. And so uh, we talked even previously too about 
kind of the state's expectations then. And so I'm hearing that right in the formation of who needs to be in the room, who needs to be a part of those conversations. And so what are some of the other pieces to the puzzle here, I guess, that as far as what the state would expect from uh, these conversations around this programming and what it would look like in action? Well, it begins with assessments. Part of the IEP process, each student has to have at least two transition assessments per year. And with those assessments, we find out everything about the student so we can help with the programming piece of it within the IEP meeting. Okay. And so what, what might those kind of assessments entail? Because I think if you're a classroom practitioner, you might think, are we talking about a math test? But I would imagine it's probably something uh, different from, from that potentially. Well, it kind of depends on the goal because math oh. test might actually be able to be used if they say even an example is if they want to, if they have a goal to become a CDL driver, they need to know angles. They need to know all of those things. So a math test could possibly be an assessment they use. The ACTs could be assessments they use. Um, any of those regular standardized assessments that are given as part of the curriculum can also be used, but there is an entire set of transition-based assessments that really goes into their skills and ability in daily living, their skill and ability in self-advocacy, self-determination, employment skills, leisure and recreation, and really just getting to know where are the challenges and how can we build goals to meet those challenges. Well, and then thinking about all that those assessments then must entail, is that something that, let's say, when they're 14, that, that starts to be a part of their K-12 educational experience is to go through so there's evidence of some of those things yeah what does that look like yeah yeah so it can be done a multitude of ways so one of them would actually be connecting with your cte teachers so your career and technical education teachers so whether that be an agriculture teacher or business because they already do assessments with kids that we can use within the iep which is really cool because we don't want to you know, constantly be assessing kids, right? Mm. And when we say assessment, sometimes we think of the formal assessment, sit down with a timer, you have this much time to complete the assessment. And that's not always true. It can be informal as well. Um, One of my favorite ones as a teacher was just sitting down and interviewing the student, talking about their strengths and what they see their opportunities for growth and, and just chat with them about what they want to come next in their life. Yeah, and that would make a lot of sense that instead of adding additional things to their academic plate, that if you find places where those skills are built in and there's an opportunity to have that assessment formally or informally, that certainly makes a lot of sense. And it's important too, I guess, one thing we didn't mention is that parents really should be a large part of that process of assessment. And so there are checklists that parents can participate in, but really just getting everybody to see exactly what the assessments are saying, that's where our goals really should be built upon is what is not being met and then what goals do we have. And so that helps us give progress, but parents should really be a big part of that as well as our educators. Yes, Pema is so right. And also in the process, we we just need to inform parents too. So not only are we in helping, they're helping us with the assessment piece, but we're also communicating with them that they're not quite done with their programming. 
And so we want them to continue with us another semester or another year so we can finish this programming and then they graduate. Uh, is it at times, and certainly not universally, but is it at times uh, a challenging conversation for parents who maybe have the uh, disposition that 18 should be the marker for that just by age alone? Uh, I would imagine, though, that having them involved in the conversation along the way would at least give you the evidence and the relationship and backstory that, that, that might help navigate those waters a little bit easier. But is that a part of it? Yeah, it can. I, I think there's several um, discussions that take place in that transition process that can be challenging. And one of them is, does the student meet their goals? Is the student able to be independent and maybe work in an environment and ensure that safety takes place or that they're going to be able to advocate for themselves, for their needs? And so sometimes there's a disconnect, I think, between thoughts on one side and, and thoughts on another. And that's where assessment can provide. And like Erica said, the observational assessment can provide a lot of information that really does help lead that conversation. When we don't have those assessments, it's really hard to kind of get over those hurdles that come up because we, we don't have any information or proof to say this is what we need to do. And if we have data that shows this student really could use more time learning how to know that a fire drill at work means get out of the building or know that safety is an element. And I know Erica probably sees different challenges than we do as well. Yeah, so I think just informing parents right away. So talking with parents, not just at IEP meetings, but making it a conversation and a collaboration, not talking at parents or telling parents, but really asking the right questions to get a conversation started and to start that conversation younger, not waiting until they are 18 to have the conversation or even 17, but we're having this ongoing conversation. So then it's not a surprise to parents when the student stays with us for an extra semester because maybe they just have one more transition activity that we really need them to meet on their IEP before they graduate, or if they do stay with us until 21 and just having that conversation. I think Erica brings up a really important point of just because a student goes past their 18th birthday on an IEP and education does not mean that they have to stay until they are 21. They can meet their goals. It really isn't determined on an age. It's determined on meeting the goals. And so she brings up a very important point for educators to understand as well. My question then following up with that would be, I would imagine then through a student's senior year that they're going to be within the familiar rhythms of the school day, bell schedules and cycling from class to class. Uh, and I want to <laughs> I gotta be careful because I'm sure that it can look different on a situational basis, right? So there probably isn't a tell me exactly what it looks like for everyone, because that's likely not true. But are those rhythms different in terms of when a student might have face-to-face -face time with an educator, for example? Um, is it on-the-job training in some instances? What, what can that potentially look like when they do, as you said, opt to continue to try to meet those goals after uh, what would be otherwise be their senior year? Within our ESU 13, we have two schools that 
some students who are 18 to 21 may attend. And within that, we use the quality indicators for 18 to 21-year-old special education programming assessment. It's by the Garrett Center, and I believe it's Sam Houston State University. And one of the key things, you mentioned the bell schedule. That's one of the things that you really should strive to reduce as the student goes into an 18 to 21 program-based um, IEP support. And you really should give them more life skills and more independent time. And they may have jobs through a job coach support. They may lead volunteer activities. Some of our students go and they lead volunteer activities. Some of our students attend college classes on the Western Nebraska Community College campus. And then that way they are on their own and that they have some courses one-on-one with the teacher, but they do not go based on that schedule. We prioritize those life-independent things over the educational, instructional one-on-one. And I think that you hit the nail on the head when you said individualized before, Andrew, is that it's totally individualized. And that's one of the reasons I love it so much is because you can sit down with an IEP team and problem solve and just create something for the student. Because sometimes our larger school districts, like I'm headed to North Platte and I know that North Platte have other options besides like they they do have an actual maybe program that students can go into, whether that be a project search or transition house. But when you think about lots of districts we serve within ESU 10, those aren't maybe options for our students. So when we problem solve, we can create whatever we want. So if the student, let's say for instance, the student loves PE and working out and we want that for them for recreational purposes and health, it's okay they're in a PE class. That's okay. You know, if they, if they need cooking, then why can't we go to the cafeteria and, and have them help in the cafeteria during lunch? And then also just look in the community to see what businesses are available, whether that be the post office or the grocery store or a local farmer. I mean, there's just so many options. And if we don't think there's options, we create them. So one of my favorite stories is a young man who loved cars. And so he actually created a detailing shop right there within the school. So he started off with vacuuming out teachers' cars. And then he grew his business from there. So it's just really sitting down as a team, asking the right questions and beginning that conversation and see where it takes us. Wow. And such creative and heartfelt supports from the educators and adults, really, right? If we're also talking about folks that are out in these businesses who are opening up opportunities for uh, those additional supports and for those goals to be met uh, in those constructs. And as you're talking, I had forgotten one of my former colleagues who retired as a special education teacher from a district I previously worked at uh, took a position at Goodwill because they have similar partnerships. And so he got a chance to kind of continue his love and support for some of those kiddos that he has served for the duration of his career as a retirement position um, and getting a chance to work with them on site there and teaching them some of the skills that I'm sure their IEPs were keying in on, but just in that format. So is that, that would be another example, potentially. Absolutely. Um, Another favorite story of mine, actually, 
Jean Anderson. She is my current boss at ESU 10. She's the special education director. She tells this story and I, and you know, I'll probably miss some pieces, but it's one of my favorites that there was a student who loved flowers and plants and they lived in a really small community and they didn't have a flower shop. So this gentleman went downtown to the local bank post office and that's what he did. He, you know how they always have those big, huge pots sitting in front of the bank or in the post office. He planted the flowers, he watered them. They also taught him how to ride his bike. So they rode his bike down there. So he had transportation and then he would just take care of the flowers all through the spring and all through the summer. So it's really about IEP teams, just getting creative, just thinking about what can we do? And I think Go talk to your local businesses. You never know. You may assume they say, no, I, I don't know, but, but you never know. There's local businesses that are just ready and willing to help. And you know, Andrew, it's really important, I think, to know that teachers aren't alone in Nebraska with transition and with these 18 to 21 IEP-based programming supports, because the state itself has a transition group and they, they put out regional grants. So a lot of activities and items, and I think they even have the assessment libraries that were funded by that. So the state of Nebraska supports that, but also a lot of ESUs have transition coordinators. And so I know for ESU 13, we have a transition coordinator who is 100% dedicated to if say that Erica's team is struggling and they're like, we've kind of gone through our creativeness. You bring that person in and that person helps you. So you're never alone. You're never alone at the planning. You're never alone in anything. And I think that's one of the benefits of being in transition in Nebraska. Wow. Yeah. Just another way in which, and I say it all the time, I came to this role pretty much from the classroom. I had a chance to run a, a grant in a district, but, and, and I knew that the ESUs did a lot. And I, I know that I was nowhere near aware of the breadth of services that are out there and the ways in which there's a person in a position that's specifically there to help across a myriad of capacities. And uh, I absolutely love that. Love hearing that. And so uh, is that sometimes when we, uh, and it's crazy how fast our conversations can kind of go sometimes. I, I guess I'll ask this though next. What am I not asking about this conversation that, because I, I alluded to this earlier, I'm pretty green to all of this. And so what, what else should people know about this 18 to 21 with regards to the services there? Oh, gosh. I, well, I think there's a lot that both Eric and I probably <laughs> would say, right? I'm sure I'm leaving um, a lot on the table. I think, I think for me, it's just because a student continues on in an 18 to 21 IEP programming mode does not mean that we shouldn't have high expectations for them. And I think what we've seen in our area, especially within our Think College LifeLink School, is that we've had students that have graduated who maybe are diagnosed with intellectual disabilities, but they attend our school and they go to Western Nebraska Community College and they receive a welding certification. And so they're able to come out of that program and become a welder. We also have one young woman who continued, we just found out that she continued with the schooling that she had taken. And she now has an associates of early childhood, which is a huge need in our state. But I think a lot of times our expectations that we set for students with that we're talking 
in this area today are, are a little lower than they really can be because they can take college courses. And all of our students have taken them for credit and received full credit from WNCC. And so I, I think for me, I just wanna stress the importance of always maintaining high expectations regardless of the disability category. And earlier, Pam mentioned that you're not alone. And I know as a resource teacher, sometimes I felt alone because I felt like I had to problem solve by myself. And so when you're sitting at an IEP team, I just want to give a shout out, not only to all the resource teachers, but also our occupational therapists and our physical therapists and our speech language pathologists and our vision educators and deaf educators, because it really is a team. Like those people are so important at the meeting because they can see things in the future that we might not be able to see as a resource teacher. So living independently, I need to get the information from our physical therapists and our occupational therapists, because I need to know what fine motor and large motor skills I'm missing when they go into their next environment, whether that be an apartment or a home. So it really is about that collaborative piece. And at ESU 10, we actually started a secondary transition team. It's led by our coordinator. So our transition coordinator, Blair Hartman, it's led by her, but we have all of the people I listed. We have a representation of all of those groups. So we can sit down as a team and problem solve. So IEP meetings can be more efficient and more effective and more collaborative. I, I'm going to make a little bit of an assumption here, but I have to imagine that the sense of, uh, well, I'll say it this way. All teachers love the moment that the light comes on and they can tell that the work that they've been invested in has landed in a way that's changed the student's lens or action or skill set, et cetera. And as a, a former secondary teacher myself, uh, those moments were terrific. And I would maybe have a student for a semester, potentially for a full year. Uh, and that would be about the extent of it. And I cannot, my assumption is to say that I would imagine that the work that you all do in support of students on your caseload and in your collaborative conversations from the age of 14 to potentially 21, that longitudinal investment in them has to make for a really rewarding experience when you finally see them meet all of their skills, accomplish their goals, enter uh, out into the workplace and uh, independent living, uh, right? I, that, that just sounds like it has to really be at the heart of this. You know, it is at the heart of it. And I just want to, I just want to clarify that that's what all parents want for their kids. It doesn't matter if they have an IEP and receive services or not. We all want our own personal children to be healthy and happy and as independent as they possibly can. And so it is when you have a group of people that help a student, what's really cool is that the student takes ownership of it. And then you know you really have done your job, right? When they take ownership of their own learning and their own success and celebrate that, that's when I feel the most happy and the most proud of, of what our team has maybe accomplished, but what is the student has accomplished and what the student knows they can do. 
And defining success, I think, is, is different. You know, we've mentioned individualization. It's different for every student. And it's also different in every stage of the transition process. And, you know, I had a student that we assessed him and identified he couldn't even make calls. And this was a student who was relatively higher functioning. And the day we had a huge celebration, and I was so proud of him, the day that he called and ordered a pizza for us. Because that's the release, you know, it's that, I think it's that moment of releasing them to the independent stage is the part for me that always has been the most impactful, I think. And and I do have a little celebration party too. Well, you should. It's a team, as you said, right? And and so certainly there is uh, the, the student is at the center of all that, but it, it, it does take a lot of thoughtful, hard work on the part of all the uh, support people involved uh, in, in coming around that too. And so you should feel good about it. Absolutely. I think so. And uh, I, I guess maybe a note to, to bring our conversation to close on, and we sometimes do a bit of a call to action. And I've heard referenced a couple times today uh, that you're not alone. There's other people you can reach out to. There are grants available. And so where might we point people to uh, if they're hearing this going, that sounds great, but I wish I had some more information or I wish I knew where, where should people go? Their ESU. <laughs> no, seriously though, call your ESU, whatever ESU you are in. And if you don't know, call ESU 10 and somebody will tell you what ESU you belong to. And just reach out to them and they will have a, whether it be a secondary transition coordinator or the special education director, they will help you kind of problem solve and get that started. And then I know we also have regional coordinators, so you can also call NDE. We absolutely have a transition coordinator to help you. And if not, I think that's one of the neatest things about Uh, Special education in general is a group of people that comes together, but the neatest thing, even going to the national conferences, when you talk about secondary transition, the secondary groups work together and share, and they're willing to do anything to help students. And I think that's the, the biggest piece is reach out to people. Don't be afraid that you're going to be known as that person that didn't know, because there's so many things, no matter how many years you're in special education, there are so many things that you don't know and that you learn every year. So never being afraid to reach out to people and ask for help or guidance, because Erica mentioned it before, it's a team and people bounce ideas off of one another. And some people know experts at that national level that can help out. So you never know what support you're going to get, but the first step really is reaching out and asking for help. Pam, Erica, I'm so grateful that you all took the time to share a little bit more about this topic today. Because as you said, I do think sometimes people feel like they don't even know the first thing about certain uh, aspects of education and the supports that, whether it's the ESUs or nationally or within your local community that are available and the people that want to be there in support. Uh, And so it's awesome to be able to shine a light on this conversation a little bit through the pod today uh, and to have your expertise to lean into and and learn from. So thank you for your time uh, and for all that you do and advocating this work. Good luck in a new role (laughs) and everything that's coming up to you and this upcoming school year. And thank you so much for today's conversation. Thank you for having us. Thank you. 